John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. accessed entry 551.EX1407, certificate number 49472. Der Grosser. Oh Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes Benz? My friends all drive Porsches, I must make amends. Worked hard all my lifetime, no help from my friends. So, oh Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes Benz? I'm going to the grocer to buy the sauerkraut. Yeah, that is a good joke. <laughs> it's classic. <laughs> You're a good American dad. I don't actually know if it's the sauerkraut, das sauerkraut. Yeah, der. I'm sure people will tell. So are you, are you good at this? Can you just... Like, my wife actually speaks a little German, and yeah. she never has any idea what the right article is. No, no. I mean, I spend so much time doing comic German, like <laughs> joke German, that it's hard to separate it from... What's, what's the funniest? Does it depend on the word? Is das always the funniest? Yeah, or der, right? Do. Um, I mean, what, usually when I'm making jokes, all my kids hear is der, 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 anyway, so... Lol. Uh, when I, when we toured in Germany a lot, I got a little bit of, I don't know, I just, you just, you spend time in any foreign country and you get a little bit of the language. And I felt like I knew, I knew it. Um, I, I could do comedy German a little bit better than I can now. I don't even remember the accents anymore. It's been so long. I haven't been to Germany in, in a decade and I miss it. Comedy German just seems kind of, um. Well, it just seems a little Hogan's Heroes. Well, there's that comedy German. I'm, I'm over funny Germans. You know, there are so many different comedy German. Werner Herzog's still funny. Yeah, he's funny, right? And he's got that very distinctive Bavarian accent. You can't just do... Such a large bounty for such a small package. <laughs> Is that the Mandalorian? <laughs> yeah. Sorry that every episode now has a Mandalorian reference. I'm glad you have seen one TV show. <laughs> Uh, what's the fanciest car you've ever ridden in? Uh, ridden in. Yeah. Mm. This is the thing. There's got to be I don't a have, fanciest like, car. I don't have fancy car friends who give me rides in their fancy cars, really. I mean, my... Um, you've been sent limos, surely. That's true. To pick you up at the hotel. Yeah, it's... You know, nowadays, if you get a car service, like, it, it is going to be some... And I don't know. It's going to be some nice... As it always was. It'll be some nice Lincoln, some nice Mercedes, maybe some nice BMW. A lot of times now, it's an SUV, a Lincoln or a Cadillac SUV. It's kind of a bummer, right? Black truck. You want a, a 
something town car like. Yeah, I mean we we were uh, we were in San Francisco one time, and a friend of mine we were walking around late at night. A friend of mine was like, "This is baloney. Let's get a car." And you know, this was early days of car service, and he pulled out his phone. You know, like like uh, right, ca- sure. call a car. Yeah. yeah. Beep, boop, boop. And we all sort of doubted him. And all of a sudden, we were standing on a street corner, you know, in North Beach. All of a sudden, a stretch Hummer limo pulls up just out of nowhere. And it had ground effects and disco ball inside. It made for a, it made for an eventful stretch Hummer. last part of the evening. Yeah, stretch Hummer. I was in, um, I was a guest on a talk show once and the, the first guest the guest before me the real guest was sasha baron cohen mm-hmm. and um i never actually set eyes on him oh but his assistant like was out in the hall just yelling at some car service because sasha wanted a stretch hummer and they were telling him they didn't have that and would have to send some other kind of stretch limo he wanted a stretch hummer he has to have a stretch hummer and I don't think he was doing one of his hilarious characters. I that think w- I think the real Sasha Baron Cohen really wanted a stretch hummer. <laughs> I think which I don't think I knew existed until I overheard that conversation. Yeah, no, and and there are some that are because we don't use those in Iraq. <laughs> no, we don't. Although they might, you know, actually ground clearance. Uh, they're typically used. I feel like for wedding parties. Uh, I, in usually, red states, <laughs> when you see a stretch hummer limo, there are generally always between five and seven women sticking their heads up out of the out of the uh, sunroof going woo woo at least in my experience i want my funeral woo! cortege to be nothing but cortege is that the right word i want my funeral <laughs> cortege to be nothing but stretch hummers woo! <laughs> and everyone will be doing that <laughs> that's what the horn Except sounds me. like woo, woo. <laughs> uh i you know you would think I've thought about this a lot because I, I like cars. And I you think would about know cars. exactly what you like. When I go into a nice car and I just look at the instrumentation, and I was like, whatever this Cadillac or whatever is, it's a pretty nice one. Yeah. But you would actually know, like you would know, oh, this is a whatever hundred of what year. It's weird because I, I you know, a lot of it I feel like is, um, it's a product of an earlier time, right? Both my mother and father were very into cars um, and they were uh, Chrysler people for a lot of that time. And when they were married in the early years of their marriage, they had matching uh, 1964 Plymouth convertibles. And I'm looking this up right now. They bought them. uh, They bought them separately. I think my mom had the first one and my dad liked hers so much that he bought one that matched it. I don't think I've ever had a big enough driveway to park two of these. Yeah. They were were cool. They are very long. And they were, uh, they were both white, but I think my mom's had red upholstery and my dad's had black upholstery did they have white wall tires uh they probably did in the time but but crucially for their marriage my mom's plymouth was faster than my dad's were they often drag racing to settle arguments well around was, the house it was a i mean it was just a thing did that you guys be- tokyo drift when somebody <laughs> put mud on the carpet between the two of them you know like if if they were if they were, but but also I think what what my mom said was that my dad would borrow her Plymouth because it just was it was noticeably hotter. I think they'd bought them used. That's what happened. And and some kid had hotted up hers, and so it was a it was actually an, a contentious issue in their marriage that my mom had a faster car than my dad. But they both really cared about cars, and so when I was a kid. They would talk about cars. They thought about cars. Now, neither one of them really was a, they they weren't mechanical. They weren't like 
a bunch of hot rods in the garage. They didn't soup up their cars. Uh, no, but they but they were just conscious of them as a as part of American design vernacular. Well, I mean, it was 1964, right? It was well, uh, the, almost the top year, if you want to argue the best year for American cars, and a real status right symbol of having the new one out front. That's right, and and the car that you chose, the brand that you chose, said something about you. You felt like it. Like it was some, you know, that was, that was my dad's Oldsmobile and this is the new Oldsmobile. I mean, I know cars are still cars, but if you look at an old magazine from this time, it will just be double page spread after double page spread of like introducing the new Dodge, introducing the new, and it's just some giant long thing that barely fits on a double page magazine spread. And here's the features and here's how your neighbors will treat you. And here's what women will think. That's right. And, 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 and really interestingly in, in America, especially the constant redesign and marketing <laughs> right. of cars. I mean, it was in, in a way it was like the dawn of marketing and the dawn of, and, and a time when our industrial prowess allowed us to, to, to have a car that was like a beautiful, a masterpiece. And we only made it for two years and then had to completely redesign it because the, but then you can say, here's the 1966 right. and everybody, will, you gotta, you gotta get the new hotness. And I, so I grew up being able to tell the make and model of every car on the road, you know, as you, as you're driving along, we would play the game, like, you know, it's a Mercury Montero or whatever. As soon as the car would come over the, the rise, you'd, you would kind of call out the make and model as a sort of name all 50 states sort of oh, that's fun. road trip game. And I was able to do it all the way into probably the mid to late 2000s before the automotive vernacular became just sort of flattened. Like every car looks. All cars look alike. Yeah, they do. They all look like Camrys. Even. That could also be you losing interest. Well. Once you lose interest in a genre of music, suddenly all the artists, the new artists sound alike too. I think that's to a certain extent true, but also there's just a, there's just a universal vernacular. I mean, and a lot of it is regulatory, right? Like cars have to have these kind of, um, what do you call the pylons? But you know. The yeah, shape of a, the a pillar, B the pillar. shape of the pillars has to be like this. The shape of the crunch zone in the front has to be like that. There's a lot of that, but also I feel like the consumers um, no longer had that kind of discernment, and so what you get now, or the imagination. Like imagination. I want to get a car that looks like nothing else. Like even Tesla reinvents the car, and uh, yeah, it just kind of looks like a BMW. Or if you, if you look at the if you look at photographs of a cityscape in 1972, just the the diversity of shapes and colors, and now colors too, right? Yeah, now it's gray, dark gray, white, black, red. I was looking at the colors of my new car, and it's literally like non colors. Like there's three whites, and it's like, do you want moon? Snow, yeah, magnesium. Yeah, it's like, well, first of all, sir, magnesium is not a color. I don't know. I don't think moon is either. Snow is barely a color. <laughs> I read an article the other day that there's a there's now, uh, if you can believe it, a divisive social issue in the city of San Francisco. No, uh, where people are painting their Victorian houses in that kind of ubiquitous gunmetal gray oh, that now no, is... Oh, that's the worst house choice. Know, Seattle is I just, don't know what era is listening, but don't do it. <laughs> six years ago, there was not a gray house in Seattle, and then there were a few, and they really popped. Like, oh, that's cool. Because it looks virtually black on sighting. Yeah. Like, it's, it looks shockingly dark. 
And then it just was like, and now you can't drive down any neighborhood street without seeing three gray houses. I did the slate blue the year that everybody did slate blue, though, so I yeah. can't say anything. Um, and when I bought my house, my house is red. It is. Uh, it's like tomato red. And at, at first I was like, what? Tomato red? Because what it was was that for probably 60 years of its life, it was stained a kind of, you know, red stain. And then when they were preparing the house to sell, they didn't want to deal with the stain, I guess. And so they painted it tomato red, which was a the same color as the stain, but now in paint form. Yeah, you can't, but you can't go back and like return it to stain, right? It's once it's painted, it's painted. Instead of oozing blood, your walls are oozing V8. Honey. <laughs> yeah. Honey or V8. But as I've lived there more and more, I realize, oh, there are so few tomato red houses and so many gunmetal gray. But anyway, in San Francisco, the painted ladies crowd who wants to keep San Francisco weird. Cheerful Victorian pastels. Yeah, v- Victorian houses that have um, that have 60 different colors Crazy in their pastels. trim. Apparently, when those houses were originally built, they weren't I've heard that. colorful. They, yeah. were, they were white and gray. They were called the unpainted ladies yeah. for many years. So the paintedness of them was, a, was an affectation that came later, but that became a, 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 a signature style of San Francisco. And now there, were, there are all these people, you know, it's like one of these things. Come on, you got to be mad about something. But the painted lady house... And then the new gray painted. If there was a row of them and one and house. one guy did the charcoal thing, <laughs> but that's the thing. Like the 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 tech millenniums who want their house gunmetal gray, they're super proud of them. They're like, "Are you kidding me? It looks amazing. It looks like a like a battleship or like a spacecraft." That's what I think when I see some car that's been painted with some custom matte paint job, mm-hmm. and it's always one of those tech guys who's like, "Look how amazing it looks. It's like a submarine. Yeah, it's so dark and dark. It's like, like the Batmobile. Like my heart." <laughs> Like my moral code, after all those sex workers I killed, but some it, in this car. <laughs> but it's a dragon. When I bought my uh, my truck recently, I really, really str- – I looked so hard to find one that wasn't black, white, gray, or red. And, uh, the, and there were only a couple, and they were really unimaginative versions of blue and right. a different color red. I bought the the um, most colorful color I could find when I bought my new car, and it is midnight is yeah, what they call it. Exactly. And it's kind of a bluish black. So so I do feel that that you know I didn't I I don't think I I lost interest in cars, but cars lost interest in you. They man. did. They became so much less interesting. Now that said, they're in every way, a superior technology. I mean, when I say that 1964 was the the greatest, or 1966, the greatest years of American you cars. You meant because the cars didn't have seatbelts. They didn't have seatbelts. <laughs> they could only go really fast in a straight line very briefly, and then they had a, a hard time stopping. Um, they weren't, they, they weren't uh, good cars. Like mechanically. Uh, in, in the amenities aren't good? Compared to now, um, no, uh, they were they were primitive. They were agricultural, um, and even at the time, and and you know, people will argue this ad nauseum. But the European cars of the 1960s were were universally kind of smaller and lighter and better handling. They had smaller motors, but they were zippy, and you know, they could actually corner. Whereas American cars were built for the big highway, and they just were meant to go. Long, long distances straight fast, you know. Um, but 
But weirdly, despite having been a auto aficionado my whole life, and presumably having access to, I mean, I read about cars, the websites, I have a bookmarked on my browser. A lot of them are about old cars, used cars. And yet when I think about the nicest car I've ever been in or the sportiest car, I really haven't been in any of these cars. I know about them. I fetishize them. I look at them. I'm, I'm when one drives by on the street, I'm like, Ooh, but I've never been in any of them. Is it because you don't know that kind of person? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know anybody. You don't know that, the sons of Russian oligarchs. Or? No, like like you are are uh, are typical of my friend group, uh, where you really don't have very much interest in cars, and most of my friends don't um, have any interest in them. I have to say, having like just been shopping for a new EV, because um, did I say this on the show that my sons, that my beloved Chevy Volt, got like t boned by a friend of my son. There it goes. Um, there it goes. Your beloved Chevy Volt. That oh, just that really rolls off the tongue. It's it. It was a beautiful thing. It handled so well. Mm. You know, it, it was just like driving a little roller skate. Sure. And then it had a you know once the battery ran down, it had like a full backup gas engine too. So it was good for road trips. Wow, it was a great car. Oh, Yippity do. <laughs> I'm just jealous. <laughs> but the Chevy um, Volt. I, I just love that one day people will be like, oh, man, a vintage Chevy Volt. They, I mean, it still runs. There's already a crazy aftermarket for them because they stopped making them. Yeah, it's not going to be some Pinto-like punchline, I'm sorry to tell you, John. <laughs> is it not, though? It is not. Um, I mean, it, it, it will be the emerging technology. It'll be like when you see like some um, some car with airplane wings in a museum or something. Well, won't the lithium battery eventually <laughs> like like... Uh, expand and explode. They'll just put in like a tiny, you know, the battery that will replace it then will be, you know, the oh, size of an apple. And sure, so they can, just, cold fusion. they can just stick it under the seat like Mr. Fusion. The, um, so I actually have been kind of coming around to car as toy just because that's who's buying EVs right now. So there's not, if you want to replace, if you want to buy a new electric vehicle now, right. You really have to buy car as toy. Yeah. Because that's, you know, they're not making, uh, I mean, I guess the the leaf or the bolt, but they're not making boring electric cars, right? Even because even the, the even selling point is that it's new and that cool. It's the new thing, yeah. even the kind of the budget options have bells and whistles. What's it, well, it doesn't take much reflection to realize that the car, the four seater, in you know, like privately owned car, is a really dumb. <laughs> it's a terrible idea. Inefficient. Way to move people from place to place, much less to build a whole society around. And you can you can you can understand where they came from. We had a we had horse carts, and you could put the family in them, and and it's, it's got to look like a horse cart, but yeah. it's got to have a internal combustion engine in it. What, and the, what, what design decisions do you make? Those were square. You know, horse carts were square and had four wheels for a reason. I mean, they're they're wide and and have four wheels for stability, and they're a square because it's easy to put boxes in them, I guess. Hay bales. I mean, a lot it's of the things we... It's easy to stack them. Yeah, a lot of things we haul, we we arranged in in blocks instead of spheres. Um, it's the same reason Japanese produce is squares. Oh, right. <laughs> you can put them yeah. in a crate. <laughs> you can put more of them in a crate. But, but as they evolved into cars and became, you know, exercises in styling and, and performance, um, 
somewhere along the line, there were a thousand different ways that human beings could have gone in terms of uh, solving the problem of me and my family or me and three of my closest friends need to go from point A to point B. What should that look like? Fast and out of the rain. What should that look like? Could have, um, could have, could have been electric, you know? Like Absolutely. The, the technology, technology is as old as gas. Yeah. yeah. Or, you know, it could have been on rails, could have been uh, independent little little personal-sized units that weren't exactly motorcycles. I mean, there are a thousand ways. And I think when futurelings look at their society, they're going to see something very different. And they're going to look back at this era, the 20th century, really, and a little bit of bleed into the 21st, where the personal car is as dumb seeming as the, you know, as using canals to, to ship things. Although canals are having their, their moment again. At least whoever these people are, they'll be able to see hundreds of thousands of these cars littering the wasteland because we made so many of them. Well, surely we will, we will recycle them for all of their lithium and platinum in their, in their catalytic converters. Right. And then all that plastic in their dashboards and seats will get converted into petroleum products Basically, like hair gels and tentacle gels. It'll Those be, tentacles are going to need a lot of, a lot of gel. And that'll be a selling point for these different kinds of uh, beauty aids in the future. Is like, a, you know, this was made from an AMC Gremlin. Yeah, this that's kind right. of this kind of shampoo is sourced exclusively <laughs> from Honda Accords made before 1983. Yeah, we squeezed this out of the out of the trunk carpeting of a Chevy Volt. We use every part of the Civic. <laughs> Why have I never heard that before? That is my new motto. It's coming. My people used every part of the Civic. But yeah, when I think of my own history, um, you know, my dad drove Audis, but he made the classic 80s mistake of buying diesel Audis. Oh. Which had a, a top speed of, you know, 70 miles an hour and it went zero to 60 in 11 minutes. Was it good mileage? Is that why people did that? It was you Memories know, the, of the gas crisis? Yeah, the 80s, there was that that European fashion for diesel as like the fuel of the future, but it was not a performance fuel. Uh, my folks migrated out of uh, Chrysler products at the end of the 1970s when Chrysler you know, hit the skids pre K car. They didn't come back with Iacocca. Yeah. My, my, my mom had a, had a Dodge dart swinger through the 1970s and my dad had a Chrysler Imperial and both of them in 1981 switched to European cars. My dad, the diesel Audi, but I convinced my mom in my new 1980s teenage Alaska Euro status consciousness I I convinced her to buy I saw a used Peugeot 604 the 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 Mitterrand 604 right the, Is that what it's called? No, but I mean it was the big it was the big Peugeot that 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 Mitterrand like drove. it actually was what heads of state would Yeah, it was a head of state if you were French head of state car and there was a did used you, one. Did you see this in the paper? Or did you see it on the no, side it was of the parked road? On, it was parked on the side of the road mm-hmm. with a four sale sign on it. I was like, it, and I thought it was the most beautiful car. Mitterrand got to Anchorage and never left. I and I, I convinced her to buy it against every like every practical Ohio farm girl bone in her body. 
and she bought this thing and it was a tremendous car, but it had, it had wheels made out of lithium or something. I mean, anytime you breathed on them, they dented and there was no way to fix them. And it was, it was just quirky in every way. Not really, it, it just didn't fit my mom's personality. I loved being 16 in it. Um, how long did you drive it? Well, she got rid of her Dodge Dart Swinger because it was made in the old American way, which was, um, it wasn't a, it didn't handle at all. It was, it mm. sat up on these bouncy springs. And when I was getting my learner's permit, I spun it out and it spun it out on the ice and buried it up to the, the, the sills in snow. You can still pass a driver's test in Alaska if you do that. Oh yeah. Oh, well, you can, you can I mean, bury your car in a snowdrift and they'll still be like, that's an 81. You pass. I mean, I got a big round of applause. The, <laughs> the tow truck that came was like, wow, you really buried this sucker. And she just realized, oh no, it has, I mean, the, the power to weight ratio was too great for how light it was and how squirrely it was. So she bought this Peugeot cause it was a big, heavy car and it was supposed to, that's kind of the logic up there at least like. Your big heavy car is going to stick to the road better. That's and, what Mitterrand was thinking. Yeah, you're going to if you crash, which you surely will, you'll have more steel around. Yeah, you, you're right you in know. the middle of it. But other than that, six oh four. One time I was working in a. Do you remember? Oh, we well we did the episode on hypercolor. Sure. I worked at a warehouse that distributed hypercolor. You shirts. worked at a warehouse. I did a. Warehouse. No, you did not work at the warehouse <laughs> in the, the mall. The men's warehouse. No, I worked in a, an actual warehouse. And the the guy that was running Genera came by the warehouse to meet everybody. And he had a BMW 320i, which was not a fancy car. But at the time, it was considered a pretty sporty car. You didn't see a lot of BMWs. And he said, hey, you know what? I'm going to buy... I'm going to buy lunch for everybody in the warehouse. And he threw me the key. He wasn't that much older than I was. I was 22. He was probably 32. Threw me the keys to his, his Beamer. And he was like, go to McDonald's and buy lunch for everybody. And at the time, I was kind of an inveterate pot smoker. And so I was like, right on, man. And I went outside. I got stoned or I was probably already stoned. Everyone's hungry, John. Work. Just go to McDonald's first. And I smoke like, later. All right. And I got in this BMW and I'm and it was in Bellevue, Washington, and I was like, there's got to be a McDonald's around here somewhere. And I drove around for an hour. Just like, oh, you know, I think I saw McDonald's and I was like, oh, that's all the way on the other side of the street. Like, there's got to be a McDonald's on this side of the street. And I was just stoned and just driving aimlessly around. And I hope the story ends with you being fired. Well, so I finally, finally found a McDonald's that met with, you know, my standards. <laughs> and I went in and I bought just random bags of food. And I came back and this guy, the the boss, was so furious because he was sure I had taken his car out and was just drifting it, you know, around Kirkland. You're like the Ferris Bueller valet. And, but I hadn't. I'd just been like, you know, just sort of driving sedately from stoplight to stoplight, too baked to make a decision about which McDonald's to go to. Did you tell him that? He No, he was... Oh, I'm no, just extremely no. high, Dude, sir. I'm so wasted. Uh, no, but he was really mad. I didn't get fired, but I ended up quitting because I was too baked to work a job. <laughs> <laughs> just, I ended up quitting to have like, more time I was like, Whoa, to smoke out. 
I have to go to work again? What kind of world is this? You're making it sound pretty good, this lifestyle. Well, to the future. I had to I had to stop smoking pot, not because it, I ever went to jail, but because it really severely constrained my motivation. Weird. To do unlike most people. Anything. Unlike most people. <laughs> <laughs> who often do their best and most uh, I mean, intellectually acute work. Some people get really, really jazzed on on marijuana. I mean, but the, but like paranoid that's and That's why angry. they're called jazz cigarettes. Yeah, that's exactly it. They get <laughs> you get in. all jazzed. Da, 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 da. I wish, like I've never driven a Porsche. I've never driven, um, I guess I rented a Mercedes at one point, but not a not a hot one. My wife's brother-in-law got a, he sold his tech company at one point in the early 2000s and bought a I don't even know, fancy Corvette of some kind. Uh-huh. And was like, hey. Check like, me out. Like thinking we were going to, like we were going to bro out. He's like, hey, you want to drive this? And I was like, not really. Uh, yeah, sure. Take me for a ride. Show me the features. You know? And I was, I think he, to this day, he probably thinks I'm no fun. Because he was like, now it's your turn to drive. And I was like, oh, I don't need to drive here. Your midlife crisis coming. Now that I'm thinking of it, there was a kid in my neighborhood whose parents bought when they redesigned, re, completely redesigned the Corvette um, in I think '83, and it was a it was yeah it was the '83. They had a, it was the first car I'd ever seen with a digital speedometer. Yeah, and it was a it was all new. The it didn't look like a Stingray like the old Corvettes. It looked like a like a doorstop. And he let me drive it. But that was peak American lack of horsepower years. Even the Corvette is. And so it was just kind of a gutless, you know, plasticky thing. Not like the Chevy Volt, which is super fun and responsive to the driver. <laughs> That's the thing. That's the thing. The Chevy Volt would absolutely school almost every American car made up until the last three years. That's actually true. But uh, our story today is about one of the all-time great cars. Um, a car that that probably escapes the notice of most people because it just see, because they're rare, but also you would have to care and you would have to understand uh both what the car was and what it symbolized. Um and it is the it was kind of in a way the uh, like a singular automotive achievement let's call it that even today like it stand it holds up it does in, in 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 with the caveat that it's a classic car made in entirely mechanical sure if you were to open a store john what would you sell oh i've thought about this a lot you know vintage sweaters um, cheap guitars, was, like old guitars, but cheap ones. Start making soap. No, I'm not like a, I'm not some artisanal shop guy. I think it would all be found. Just stuff you're trying to empty out of your house. Yeah. Recycled garbage. There's that store in, you know, the, the, the little seafaring store in Paul's bow yeah. that sells like old stuff from old fishing uh, bobs and yeah, stuff. Yeah, Just wrecked sh- ship stuff. I love that store. You just want to sell old diving helmets. I do. I want to find stuff and resell it. When you begin your old diving helmet store, let me recommend to you Shopify. Well, now, how is Shopify going to help me? It's, uh, it gives entrepreneurs the resources that like a big 
store would have so you could compete with them as a little entrepreneur. Oh, this is helpful because I worry about this. You worry about big diving helmets choking out your business. It's just like there are so many things that you need to have a cool online business, and I wouldn't know where to start. Shopify does it all. It helps you reach customers online using social media, helps synchronize sales you've done on different venues and platforms. It gives you reporting of your profit margins and your conversion rates, and it helps you accept all major payment methods. It integrates all the behind the scenes stuff that has to happen for you to start selling diving helmets. See, this would be the stuff that was challenging for me, right? All the, like I would get overwhelmed by trying to do all this myself. Let Shopify do it for you. It's Hmm. more than a store. It grows with you. And I've got an exciting deal that I want to offer you right now, John. Well, well, what is it, Ken? If you go to shopify.com slash omnibus. Now that's easy to do. Slash omnibus, all lowercase. You're saying shopify.com slash omnibus and omnibus is all lowercase. The letter O, it's lowercase. Oh, I see. So don't capitalize O, even though we normally would. The letter M, equally lowercase. So don't do lowercase O and then capital M, which would be weird. Neither shalt thou capitalize the N, (laughs) the I, or the bus. Uh If you do that, you will get a free 14-day trial, and that'll have full access to the entire suite of features Shopify offers. Two weeks. Two weeks. Shopify powers over 2 million businesses from first sale to full scale. First sale to full scale. That's Shopify. All the way from first sale to full scale, the full spectrum of things that rhyme with whale. So you're saying I could grow my business with Shopify today by going to shopify.com slash all lowercase omnibus, but don't type in all lowercase. Just type in the word omnibus, but do not hit the caps lock or shift key Right. while you do so. Shopify.com slash omnibus right now. Shopify.com slash omnibus. The car I'm referring to is the Mercedes 600 series, um, which Mercedes sold as the Mercedes Grossa. And that's a... Now, to us, that has a weird sound, but that just means the great, right? It's like Friedrich the Grossa? Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, it's... Which which would not be so weird if you saw a Lincoln or a Cadillac that was... Yeah, the Cadillac Grand. Sure. Um, But it's often misunderstood to mean just big because in, in German, you know, uh, right. Grossa is often the larger, you know, if, if you're, if you're buying two, two containers of laundry soap, the, the Grossa one is the larger. Was it big? Um, it was extremely big. Well, there you go. <laughs> That's right. But, uh, but, uh, it's, it's commonly mistook to uh, or misunderstood, mistranslated by American enthusiasts as the grosser with an R. Which we have called this show. Which is the title of the show. In a nod to ignorant Americans. That's right. Because that's us. Because the fan, the fan base of it, at, at least in America, is, you know, is, I think like, like, uh, the actual fans, the owners would be. Uh, Are they be, annoyed at the common? Yeah, they would be careful to say no. It's Grossa or Grossa, uh, but it's the it's the fanboys, it's the magazine writers, it's the uh, it's guys like me that put an R at the end. Slang, because the the original German word had the had the the uh, the double S letter that looks, that like, looks a like a capital B, B to us. 
And you were saying that that uh, contemporary German has eliminated this letter? Yeah, I think whatever the academy is has said, no, 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 we're not going to put that on signs and publishing anymore. We'll just put in a double S. The, because it's the a set or whatever. A, a weird holdover from archaic German or high Gothic. I guess. And, you know, maybe the fact that other languages don't have it. So in a unified Europe, uh, blah, blah, blah. We don't, we don't put, uh, we don't spell the letter S with as an F anymore. Here in English. Uh, oh, it's 19, 1996 was the orthography reform that actually got rid of... There was an agreement signed in Vienna by all the German-speaking countries. You got, no. you got Germany. Sure. You got Austria. Sure. You got Liechtenstein. Right. You got part, Switzerland. Of, part of Switzerland. Yeah. That's probably about it. East Africa, they I got, guess. No, they by got... then they'd lost all their... <laughs> all of German-speaking East Africa was gone. Luxembourg did not participate despite having German as one of its three official languages. So Luxembourg still uses the 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 S my, gu- my guess is by this time they've followed suit. Yeah. But um although they they really chart their own course, the Luxembourgians. In in reformed orthography, the S set is considered a separate letter that is that is to appear only after long vowels and diphthongs. But that was always true. Wasn't it? I don't understand what the difference is. I hope somebody writes in to explain this to us. Yeah, please do. Because I don't and, want to look it up. And please write the letter in German, making it that much yeah, more difficult for us to understand. In some kind of understand. old-timey Gothic German where the S set looks really cool and tall. But, you know, Mercedes-Benz has a long and storied history. Daimler, Mercedes. Um, and they made, throughout the course of their history, made a lot of... Uh, of limousines, big cars, uh, often called the Grosse. Um, they made, of course, those cars that you see in every World War II movie. There's no way that I could do this show without mentioning Hitler at least once. And did Hitler ever drive a big German car? Yeah, or was driven around in a big German car. He, that, was, he wasn't leaning out the window? Uh, he was standing up in it. See you later, <laughs> losers. And he's, he pulls out in a cloud of dust. He was speaking an Austrian dialect, but that was the Mercedes 770, and it was, you know, these were cars that were made for a pretty, uh, a lot of these cars were made for an extended period of time. Um, I think the post-war, the, the Europeans kind of picked up that American energy and, you know, Ferrari only made a car for a year and then switched and made a different car. But this car, the 770, was made from 1930 all the way through the war. And it was a popular car. And you, and we'll see later that these big Mercedes are often popular with despots. Uh, in the case of the Mercedes 770, it was also the preferred car of uh, Franco mm-hmm. in Spain, Mussolini in Italy, which is strange considering how many Italian post-war, how many sure. cars are made in Italy. At the time, maybe not so many. And even Hirohito, all uh, in the in the lead up to and through the war were Riding around in Mercedes 770s. Is that, and that's the same car you said Hitler had. So it's the official, right. the official vehicle. Of, it's the of, fascist car. 1940s fascism. Yeah. And, and, you know, you can't talk about any product of industrial Germany without kind of having to reflect on the fact that during the war, uh, they, you know, all these companies were making can, can an, uh, in Nazi the, stuff. Can an inanimate manufactured object be fascist? 
today? Are there fascist staplers and anti-fascist staplers? Well, it's a good question. I mean, the Puma and the Adidas both... Um, weren't they both fascist? <laughs> both fascist. <laughs> so uh, Nike is the only anti-fascist. And, you know, I mean, uh, sure, you could argue that uh, that all industrial products are fascist. Is this, is this something about its history? Is it something you can just tell? You can look at the, you can look at the line of a, of a blender or a doorbell and say... Uh, don't get the fascist one. I, f- I feel like as soon as you are smelting uh, iron into steel, it's fascist. You, we should all sure. just be wearing burlap loincloths. Bur- That's the only way. Burlap and twine. Yeah, we should. We should spend. You and I should spend most of our day weaving our own garments from reeds. Jute underwear. I want a. I want a coffee maker that's compatible with Marxism. Yeah, as, and I'll pay extra for that. As soon as you, as soon as you, you get enough people together to crank out something and sell it, you're you're on a slippery slope to fascism. After the war in uh, New West Germany, Mercedes kind of got their stuff together. Like uh, you've heard of the Maybach, right? What does that mean? That's a Mercedes model. The Maybach was a. Um, they were sort of a separate company from Daimler-Benz. Uh, Maybach actually made almost all of the tank engines for the Nazis in the war. Any tank, any motorized, like like ground attack vehicle, almost certainly its its engine was made by Maybach. What's worse, to make the dictator's car or to make the actual tank engines? Which makes you a more a worse instrument of of fascism not sure i mean it's one is symbolic yeah but the other one you're you know you're running over a lot more right you've got neumann's making the uh microphones of the fascists i think bear is probably making the aspirin of the fascists fasprin we call or or uh or the the methamphetamine that was powering the fascists that's probably the worst if you're making the fascist meth yeah fascist meth because you're just allowing them to do twice as much fascism (laughs) and and like twice as late at night (laughs) you're really extending the fascism clock uh mercedes continued making a version even as uh as european cars got much smaller uh you know the 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 vibe changed. We were making, where European car makers were making Volkswagens and little Opals, cars that were not, Europeans didn't do the big, fat, finned, wide American, uh, like bl- almost cars that are bigger than trucks. They Cars that look like big fish. Yeah, they kind of shrank it down. And got into performance and got into what we think of as like one of the defining characteristics of German industrialism, which is uh, polish and refinement, precision. If uh, not to not to besmirch them with a with a kind of uh, cultural like Prussian rigor, you're not, yeah, you don't yeah, want to say that. I don't want to say the. I don't want to make a sweeping generalization, but but German industrial products are thought of as as. Having having precision and 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 um, all those, quality control. All those cuckoo clocks that they made all for the centuries. Clocks, the little watches. They're very into little things. They like painting Ronin. Have you heard about the guy that goes to the German watchmaker and mm-hmm. says, um, "There's a problem with my clock. It just goes tick 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 tick." And the clock repairman says, "Ah, you have ways of making your talk." That's great. You haven't heard that? No, that's lovely. But won't you be telling it now a lot? If I had heard it, I think I probably would have let it go right 
in one ear right out the other because I have other. Oh, because you have other German clockmaker jokes that are better. Fine. (laughs) No, my head is, my head has to be filled with a lot of self-recrimination. It doesn't have room for like lighthearted. You would have more, you would have more self-recrimination if you told jokes like that. I, no, pr- I don't promise. seem to. <laughs> but you would. <laughs> I absolutely would. You seem to just blissfully float along with a with a look on your face of I'm, like a dozy cow. I'm the only person around me that doesn't have to put up with me. Uh, like I'm, I have a position of rare privilege. <laughs> <laughs> so these big German cars are not like big finned American cars, but they're still substantial, There's right? always one that need because because Mercedes has the kind of uh premier European and Citroen would argue that but like no, everything like everything made in France it's only for a French domestic market. Nobody wants it except I wanted that Peugeot. You, at one you point. probably would drive a Citroen around Seattle if you given the opportunity. I would they're very expensive now. And mm-hmm. they you know the 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 the, uh, the Citroen fan base is like hyper hyper aware of it. They're not quirky. They tend to be they tend to be people who are um convinced uh, that the that the alternative to the mainstream is the superior way. So the Citroens aren't aren't typically driven by people that are like wearing a wacky hat. They tend to be like technically oriented. I've done the math. I've done the math, and this is actually the superior car, even though you can't make that argument really anywhere except among other enthusiasts. But they're very convinced of the wisdom of their ways. And maybe rightly so. Who who knows? Because they none do. of us will ever They've done the math. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I've never seen one in this country, but, but okay. You know, they had hydraulics before anybody. I mean, they have all this interesting... Uh, all these, this design innovation. This sounds like me talking about how great my Volt is and and you're just laughing and laughing. But it's the whole nation of France convinced that, that they can reinvent absolutely everything and make it better, even though they have to deal with the fact that they are French and their, and their market is French. So who know who could even tell if it was better? There's no, you can't, it's apples and oranges, right? A visitor could come and look at French cars and then hurriedly, Run across the border to Belgium and Spain and see some real cars. No, there are no visitors to France. Let's just dispel that notion right away. I had no idea. Uh, but so after the war, the the uh, Mercedes made uh, again a statesman car, um, which they called the 300D, and it was a it was a big limousine, kind of an not even that much of an evolution from the 770. Um, and it was actually kind of popularly referred to as the Adenauer because Adenauer had a, had several. Back, he was the Justin Bieber of the, of the late 40s. He was. He was a real. Well, 50s, right? He was the first chancellor of modern Germany after after the Americans were like, okay, we'll give you limited self-governance at first here. See how you do. No Nazis, though, or at least no Nazis who haven't. Reformed themselves. We denazified all the Nazis <laughs> who have claimed that they're all better now. But the Adenauer was a beautiful car and had a kind of, uh, you know, uh, a je ne sais quoi, however you would say that in German. Je ne sais quoi. I'm sure that's what it is. Uh, that's not even a joke worthy of you. But the um, do, do nicht. Uh, <laughs> go 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 do it uh, land it. Uh, no, I can't. No. Uh, but by the 
by the mid sixties, well, by the early sixties, there was, you know, automotive design had progressed and technology, auto technology had progressed to the point that Mercedes recognized they needed to build, you know, a, a new kind of definitive limo. And they, and they saw that there were, that the market for these cars was small, but, um, but wealthy and also, um, they they were they 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 saw their competition in Rolls Royce and Bentley, who were kind of making. If you think about the reputation of Rolls Royce, right? They're making the car of the aristocracy. A small number of them, but somehow that pays off because you can inflate the price enough. Well, and handmade, yeah, and and made in such a way that um, their their performance and their comfort exceeds what mass production is capable of a kind of, um, is that true at the time? Yeah. 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 I, I, at a time when, when the, the, some of the aspects of mass production, the, the efficiencies of it and the, just the kind of assembly line methodology you could employ to make, uh, you know, to make more than four of them, but you still had, people that had grown up their whole lives working in metal who understood the tools who were fascinated by internal combustion and were, you know, were kind of handcrafting these things. I think when something's mass produced, you get pretty quickly, the tooling starts to wear. Yeah. And so, you know, at, greater at, variance. Yeah. And- at first the tools are too tight and, and the, the early cars are, are prone to failure. And then there's a sweet spot in the manufacturing run where the, everything's kind of in, you know, it's all, uh, sort of slopped together into like a, there's a, there's probably in the, the run of every industrial product, a perfect one right in the middle somewhere where the tools are worn in the, the process is streamlined. It's, it's all happening. And then they just make one and you should always try to buy that one. And it's just the perfect one. And then immediately after that, the degradation in the tooling starts to affect it. And then later ones don't fit together very well. Cause everything's just kind of rad. You should not have told me that. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm never going to want to buy a consumer good again. It's, I want to go live in the mountains. It's pretty my... tricky. Like why, why does one computer, one laptop last for nine years and, and somebody else's laptop from the, from the first day is just, it just is, is there's a ghost in the machine. So Mercedes sets about to design this car to compete with Rolls Royce and in an, in an unprecedented fashion, the mandate for designing the car is a kind of cost is no object mandate and no one does that anymore and no one really did it very much then um, because price is no object requires either an understanding of your of your market that price is no object to them or that you have the leeway as a corporation to make a thing that's that's a loss leader i mean the, we talked about the bugatti veyron i don't think they sell i don't think they make any money selling those cars um and it's you know it's crazy to to make a thing that sells for a million dollars 
and not make any money on it. These can't all be loss leaders, right? They they can just price they can just jack up the price. They to jack a up the price because people it's it'll be self fulfilling. People are paying for the prestige that comes with that high price. Right, right. So Mercedes sets about to build this limousine, and they um, and they recognize, I think that that they're building a thing that is. It's it's trying to compete with Rolls Royce, but it's trying to outdo it in every way. It's going to be the best of its kind in the world. The best of its kind in, in the world, and they they do a thing that's very French, but in a very German way, which is they redesign um, what a car is and what how so well in in quite a few ways. Uh, one of the ways, and I think the one of the ways that that enthusiasts this is one of the things that sets the car apart in both in its time and in the present day as as a fetish item for people to find and restore um they decided that electrically operated systems were too noisy too inefficient um, and electric motors at the time for, for instance, electric windows, electric sunroof, electric motors to move your seat back and forth. Were those already in cars? In no, the, the, this oh, was, okay. this was kind of all, this was the, the new, the new fashion electric windows were starting to come on, into play, but the motors to drive them. Imagine ha- poor Mussolini having to roll down his own oh, window with God. one of those little turning little well, cranks. No, he had somebody to do it. He, he had. He would feel like a moron. He had some little black shirt sitting at his knee who, you know, would roll his window down and say, is that, you know, you know, bene, bene, and then back up like a little, at, like down. At, like at the fast food window, this guy would have to do <laughs> yeah. this? Rink, 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 rink. Who would say the order, Mussolini or the guy? The guy. Okay. Mussolini would say, would just speak it to the, to the air, and then the, then the kid would say it to the... The usual... Uh, Mercedes decided in the in the design of this car that they were going to make all of the systems, the windows, the seats, the sunroof, the trunk, and the doors of the car all hydraulically operated. By doors, you don't mean the locks. You mean the doors could actually just open? The, the doors of hydraulics? would open and shut hydraulically. Wow. And the windows, because... The hydraulic system, and so by hydraulic, uh, for those not not uh, following along, not hip to your jive, there are little tubes running throughout the car in an incredibly complicated system um, that are fil- full of fluid, and so it's this V eight filled with V eight filled with with V eight. Ah, oh, that's why cars have. V8. Could have had that's why cars V8. have V eight engine. Um, so that it was all the, it was power on demand, instantaneous, because the the uh, the system was had a you know was cranked up this two thousand psi. There's already flu- pressurized fluid everywhere, ready right. to do your bidding. And so that's the dream for me. For instance, the the uh, the switch the the switch that rolls up your power windows, um, it was actually a gradiated switch. So if if you pushed on it lightly, the window would go up slowly. But if you if you really leaned into the switch. The window was like a guillotine. It would and silent because there's no engine, no motor. I mean, with modern electronics, you could do that kind of thing, but that's that must have been eye popping in 1960 or whenever this was. And even now, if you if you sit and and work your window or your sunroof, I mean, they make 
noise and it isn't just yeah it isn't just the noise of the of the gears it's it's there's electrical noise associated with it and these windows and seats and sunroof I mean and trunk all these things uh operate instantly and silently in a in a way that's almost even more silent than my Chevy Volt yeah even more silent than the Volt I mean the Volt is quiet it has no engine noise, so it's dangerous on the road. It's, yeah, it's, a, it's a pedestrian for, It's great for backing over elderly people yeah. and the like. Yeah, that's right. And I, I, I see your cars go by, and the only thing that makes noise is the tires on the road. And I'm like, oh, it's danger. That's wrong. Danger, danger. Oh, with a lot of them, they have put in fake sound. You know this, right? Really? Yeah. Either some little submarine ping. What? Yeah, you back up, and your car is like making a little like, it's Red <laughs> October. Oh, no, that's terrible. And I think that maybe the Prius actually has like a like a little simulated motor rum, noise, rum. so that you don't just <laughs> mow somebody down beep, in a parking beep. lot. Uh, they should actually have. Uh, they should. It should have be a like, person. Yeah, somebody in Japan whose job is to go. That was Wario's job. That's why he talks like that. He's the Japanese person of, of car noises. Elon Musk should do it for the test. It should be live. You should have somebody live wa- watching your car and making appropriate noises to passersby. There's actually a weird story, a weird adjunct to this story that we'll, we'll discuss. Where I'll, I'm going to circle back to that. I'm feeling really pleased with myself today, John, because I remembered to cancel a TV channel during the seven-day free trial period. Wow, how did you even manage to do it? You you watched TV for a couple of days and you were like, this is not for me? I watched the one movie I wanted to see on this channel and then I had to set a little notify update on my phone to remind me to cancel the damn thing before it became $5.99 a month. I've been paying for an app for a year and I have never used it once. And every week I say, oh, I got to cancel that thing. And I still haven't done it. That's why they want you to sign up for those things. Yeah. Because they think you'll forget to unsubscribe. And even though you don't use the surface, they'll just keep siphoning money off you for months to come. Yeah, they hope it they hope it never goes away, right? You forget about it. We want to recommend to you Truebill. If you were to download Truebill, it would manage all your subscriptions for you. It'll figure out what stuff you're not using but you're still paying for, which ones you forgot about. The average Truebill user saves about seven hundred and twenty dollars a year. You know, not everybody is as circumspect as you and I are about subscribing to things, right? People, I think, in the contemporary economy recognize that subscriptions are how you get the things that you want, but they also are susceptible to a lot of things that they don't want to pay for anymore. And and companies specifically make it hard to cancel, you know? So you've got to know where on the site to do it. Here's all the hoops you have to jump through. Truebill will do that automatically for you. That's why I still get Time Magazine. Peace of mind. They have over 2 million users and have collectively saved them over $100 million. So how do I use Truebill? It's easy, John. Don't fall for subscription scams. Start canceling today by going to Truebill.com slash Omnibus. So you're saying if I go to Truebill.com slash Omnibus, it could save me thousands a year? That's right. Truebill.com slash Omnibus. The car was designed to be wider and and stiffer and bigger than any Mercedes previously, so much so that they had to design a new engine to to uh, power it. So Mercedes up until that point all had six-cylinder motors, and they had to finally 
develop a, a V8 motor, which they called the M100, which was, um, by American displacement standards, not really big at all, but by European standards, it was 6.3 liters. It was, um, you know, it was a, a very large motor and made to exacting German standards. It, it only produced 250 horsepower, which is a lot less than a similarly sized American motor, but it had a lot of sort of uh, what you describe as Teutonic torque. And, you know, now to a physicist, what distinguishes, <laughs> what distinguishes regular torque from Teutonic torque? Uh, it's just a feeling you get. Is and it a, wearing a Viking hat with horns? And a lot of this is about the feeling of it. Yeah. Um, when you, when you compare now, and I think in, in, in contemporary times, when Rolls-Royce and Mercedes were compared to one another, um, all, because the Rolls-Royce was the target of this, of this, the marketplace. It, it looks like a, I'm looking at it. It looks a little like a Rolls. But the Rolls-Royce was, uh, continued to sell in the thousands, was always a popular car among the wealthy. Um, but it didn't have, uh, you wouldn't describe it as being muscular, you know, it had all the refinement. It was elegant. It was uh, gracious. But maybe it, that's what you want. It well, and often it is. But this had the the Teutonic torque is just sort of a shorthand for the feeling of this car, imposing, uh, muscular, and also, I mean, it was it was quite a bit wider. You know, the Mercedes emblem on the front of the hood. Yeah, they actually had to scale it up by. 20% or more just in order that it look pr in proper scale to the size of this car. Cause otherwise it would have looked too small. And so in uh, the car debuted in uh, the mid, the mid sixties, they made it from 63 and continued to make it kind of unchanged until 1981. Unchanged, yeah, with minor it's, modifications. It's kind of, I guess, it's kind of out of time, no matter what. And that's true, you know, of buying a Rolls Royce or whatever. You know, you don't want one that changes with the styles of sedan. Yeah, right. As as um, I mean, th this was true in uh, Toyota made a car called the Century, and they made it mostly unchanged. It was the limousine that all of the uh, heads of state, but also the Yakuza drove the or were driven around in the Toyota Century and the like the head of Sony or whatever the yeah and, and it's a handmade car and mostly unchanged from 1967 to 2017 that's a bummer they only made a half century <laughs> right right they, 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 only, called they, only the half got, century. they only got halfway there but you know a handmade car and meanwhile Toyota is yeah. changing their cars you know uh, right and left but if you put an old one and a new one next to each other you know, they're recognizably the same car. And that was true of the Mercedes 600. They made it in three different configurations. They made the, a short wheelbase version, which is a very long car. Then they made the long wheelbase version, which is an extraordinary, almost a comically long car. Is it like, is it looking like a stretch at that point or it's not? It's absolutely a big, long stretch limo. Um, some smaller proportion of the long wheelbase cars actually were given six doors. Oh, wow. Um, and you'll, you see these often as kind of staff cars, um, because you've got, you know, three, three, three rows. rows of seats. And even the, 
even the the two the four door version of the long one had seats in the back, kind of facing rearward. Um, but you know, a tremendous amount of room. There was you could outfit it with a refrigerator. You could outfit it with what well, at the time would have been an incredible technology, having an actual phone, phone yeah. in the car. A phone and a bar. Those are the things that were always in. A phone and a bar. Fancy man. cars when I was a kid that I'd read about. Really, it's all you need even to this day. I mean, lots of people have those adjacent to their apartment. A phone and a bar. A phone and a bar. So that's that's as fancy as any Rolls Royce right there if you live someplace with a phone and a bar nearby. I stopped uh, needing a bar, and I'm really, really trying hard to stop needing a phone. You are ready to go live in the woods. I am. I am. Your, I'm ready to start my own small religion. Burlap. Uh, and the car was designed by a, by a, a you know a kind of team at Mercedes. Uh Friedrich Geiger had been a designer at Mercedes for a long time and he designed a lot of those pre-war beautiful um Nazi staff cars and then he had two younger guys, Bruno Sacco and uh and Paul Brack who was a Frenchman. And they were in their early 30s and kind of, uh, and Paul Brack sort of famously spearheaded the design of the 600. He ended up also working as a designer on the TGV, the high speed train. High speed train in France, and then took over the. Those are beautiful trains. They're beautiful. He took, then he became the head designer at BMW in the early 70s and designed all of, he designed basically the forerunner of that 320i. That is among the zippiest cars I ever drove. And then he switched over to no less a uh, company than Peugeot, where he designed the 604, the uh, the mid-around car that I drove as a teenager. Can you still be a great car designer well into your old age? It's not like, not like other fields where you do all your great work in your late 20s? Well, because he was in his early 30s or late 20s when he designed that, Stuff you know in the seventies, he was huh. only in his forties. He wasn't like uh, he wasn't ninety. I see. But we'll see that he does make a reappearance as an innovative car designer in a moment. Um, these cars immediately caught on with heads of state and celebrities. Um, but one of the things that makes them interesting is um, they became kind of inseparable from mid-century despotism. Um, the cars, although the Pope had one, and, um, you know, and people that we think of as uh, as cultural thought leaders. Like Ringo? Um, like Elvis. Yeah. And... Um, Every Beatle but Paul had one. Interesting. Uh, and I think it's maybe to Paul's credit when you think of some of the other people that had it. Such notable fascists as Coco Chanel <laughs> and Eric Clapton uh, <laughs> both had them. Also, Bowie, who I was thinking about this the other day. You know, Bowie has, we all think of Bowie as like one of the kind of legendary um sort of righteous pop figures, but there's been a lot of Bowie Nazi, Nazi erasure 
in the years, you know, he Oh, is that true? Did he did he love the iconography of In the in the mid to late 70s, he famously riding in the back of this very car, the uh the 600. Mm-hmm. And some very small group of the long, the stretch versions of the Mercedes were built with a, a Landau top, which is a convertible top. But only on the but back. But only on the back. I, I saw a picture of this. And some of them were uh, short Landaus that only went back over the back seat. And some of them were long Landaus that were... Uh, that were kind of the whole back part of the limousine. Only a few of those were made. I think only, um, there were only nine six door long roof landalettes made. Hmm. And in one of them, Bowie, Does that you have the, to order one. Yeah. All, all of these were kind of custom ordered, but it was a, it was a huge, uh, a huge scandal in its time in the late seventies when I don't remember when Bowie, Bowie was in his thin white Duke phase, he was leaving some event and he stood up in the back of his Mercedes 600 and gave the Sieg Heil. Oh, and was it an ironic statement on, on being in a nice German car? Well, or he was, was also, <laughs> he, he also had, like dyed blonde hair slicked yeah, back and was wearing them. a three-piece Hermann Goering suit. And living in Berlin. And living in you Berlin. You know who else lived in Berlin? <gasps> Adolf Hitler. Go on. And, you know, like, uh, th- this was an era where there were a lot of this kind of controversy, right? I mean, Elvis Costello famously slurred yeah. uh, Ray Charles. Eric Clapton went on a racist rant and... He is not thought of as a righteous pop star because he never disavowed it. Um, <laughs> I still think there should be no brown people in England. Whereas Bowie said, no, you misunderstood. But it, the the photos are, I mean, he could, it's conceivable that he was just waving um, because this was an era where it was a newspaper photograph. Right. But there are photographs of his gesture from several angles and it's ambiguous. He's not wearing a three-piece suit at the time, but he he does look like an androgynous android. There was a lot more uh, prominence on being provocative above all back then. There was, and there it was also a time. Well, of course, when, I did a Nazi salute. It was provocative. Oh well, in that case, I didn't know it was provocative. <laughs> and there was a lot of reappropriation of n- Nazi imagery at the time. Bikers and punkers um, were we're all kind of not reappropriating it for but, peace, but, but like, some of them were white supremacists. Well, right? or they were using it not beyond provocative to be a kind of, to be nihilist. Right. Yeah, I mean, yeah. when, uh, when Sid vicious wears a swastika, he's not a fascist. He's just being, he's just like nothing matters. And, um, and if you're bent out of shape about this, it's because you're old and you fought in the war, and we're young, and we spit on your sacrifice. Right. Um, but Bowie is not. Uh, and and the thing is, I love that we have rehabilitated, or or that that is just a, a weird footnote. You know, it gives it gives kind of a. Um, you get a sense that you can you can be this the center of a storm of controversy, but. In the end, your true actions 
reveal who you are in the in the in the course of your life. By the by the time Bowie died, nobody was like, "Well, wait a minute." What about that? What time? if that was the headline? <laughs> Nazi saluting pop star dies of heart condition. Uh, but no, cancer. Bowie was yeah, cancer. Bowie was not alone. I don't. It's arguable whether Hugh Hefner is a fascist. I don't think it's arguable that Jeremy Clarkson of the Top Gear program <laughs> is one. Hundred <laughs> percent. But here are some other uh, people who drove or were driven around in. Uh, 600s. Uh, Ceausescu. Mugabe. Saddam Hussein. Mobuto Sese Seiko. It's really all, it's everyone you would expect. Mao. Greatest hits. Uh, the Shah of Iran had so, ma- had so many of them. There were, he had 18 yeah, Mercedes six hundred. Yeah, so does Jay Leno. For he had uh, like all of his uh, all of his National Guard drove around. He had three of the of the Landolets, uh, three of the uh, you know there are only le- fewer than sixty of them made in total. Yikes! Uh, Brezhnev, King King Jong Il, uh, Tito, Idi Amin, Marcos. It's really you can't be a dictator and not have one. <laughs> Papa Doc. It looks Duvalier, like. Uh, F.W. de Klerk, and and they were very popular in South Africa. And uh, the heads of state of Nicaragua, China, Kenya, Chad, Tunisia, Morocco, uh, the Central African Republic, Malawi, Senegal, Gabon, Cambodia, Bulgaria, Turkey. Really every country that you could describe as at one point or another having a despot. I guess if you're running a Western-style liberal democracy, even the even the royal family of of Great Britain has to appear to be careful stewards of the public trust. You yeah. know, you you can't indulge in every luxury just because you're the big man in Belgium. But that is not necessarily true in a authoritarian government. You know, these are the people who don't have to have the good look of well, I I just drive a Volvo. You know the Right, there's no humility, but you would be you would expect Brezhnev for instance, sure, to ride in a Russian car and that somewhat speaks to the uh the the quality and like imposing uh like uh unduplicable uh, imposition of this car. They had transcended anything about politics or origin. Right, if Brezhnev can ride in one with with everybody in his in his entourage, also you know, riding in in it's Russian actually, It's cars. actually good for the proletarian revolution if Brezhnev <laughs> is in this car. <laughs> and Mao, too. I think Mao and the Chinese government had dozens of these cars. So, and, and weirdly, this car was, the, the Mercedes thought of them as competition for the Rolls Royce. But in America, the Cadillac and the Lincoln Continental both were similar dimensions and had similar uh, performance, at least top speed and, you know, zero to 60 performance. And I should say that zero to 60 performance in all of these cars, the 66 Cadillac, which had a much larger engine, you know, we're talking about zero to 60 times eight to nine seconds long. Same with the Mercedes, you know, nine second. Uh, zero to a hundred kilometers, 
Um, in contrast, the Chevy Volt. <laughs> uh, well, your current car, the Polestar. Yeah. Uh, has it it a, has a Tesla like uh, has a zero to sixty to time seconds. of four point five seconds, and that's actually high. Like I think Volvo plays. This is like a Volvo side project offshoot. It's their EV offshoot, and I think they play a little more conservatively with their numbers than Tesla does. Yeah, they can do it I think quite a bit faster. I think, I think it's a little under four. Half the time or less of the of these top speed top performance. In my cars. car, you have you can get to sixty, stop, and get to sixty again, and still beat <laughs> the Mercedes six hundred out of the gate. Even my Ford Expedition can do it in six seconds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and the fastest Mercedes right now, the AMG, is three and a half seconds. The AMG E sixty three. So they're not performance cars by contemporary standards, but they also weigh um, five thousand pounds or. On the plus in, side. in the case of the Mercedes, 7,000 pounds. And the, a lot of these dictators big are big boys. Yeah, that's right. So you're talking about three tons when everybody's on board. You are, a, a chonky dictator needs to be in a car that matches his or her mm, uh, physical stature. Super chonk. So they stopped making them in 81, and they didn't replace it with anything, really. It was irreplaceable. There wasn't... And and so a lot of them was the, was the demand gone in eighty one? Um, there was an energy crisis. Yeah, I guess that's. It. Um, but also every despot that wanted one, including um, John Lennon, like they all had them, and they le- they meant to last forever. <laughs> Everybody who could afford one owned one. Or in the case of the Shah and Jay Leno, eighteen. So, and Mercedes has tried, I mean, Maybach is a thing that they brought back uh, in recent years as an attempt to make like a... a so it's like their luxury name. Yeah, plate. well, they tried to, you know, it was a sort of a separate branch of the company where they were going to make this bespoke uh, limousine that was going to sell for $350,000. What, what did these sell for, by the way? You, you, you never actually said. Like, what, during the life of the Mercedes 600, what were people putting down either in... Either in seventies dollars or today. Well, in in the in their time, they were uh, between ten and fifteen thousand dollars, which would have been an extraordinary amount of money. You know, three times the cost of the sort of top Mercedes. Yeah. Um. And and you know a lot a lot more than. I guess car prices have not tracked inflation because of the complexity and but technology. They, but they were price competitive with the Rolls Royce. Uh, that was, you know, and 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 a better car. Um, but you know, the Cadillacs and stuff. You I'm just saying, if you scale less. that up to inflation, you're you're, you know, you're around high five figures, and I'm sure that's. But that's but, not what a you know, if you track it with a high end Mercedes, it would obviously be. Well, now I mean, a, a, a Maybach and a and a Bentley, you know, they're in the they're. Uh, mid six figures or, you know, 300,000 bucks. And the Maybach was a, was a sales failure, although it appeared in a lot of rap lyrics. Um, because it rhymes with so many things. Nobody wanted it because it didn't look special. It just looked like a kind of fat Mercedes S series. And it wasn't, it didn't have, um, the it factor, uh, Rolls Royce during that period sold, Tons of their of their top line cars and Maybach just couldn't compete and eventually they shut it down. But these six hundreds have a life. Uh, you mentioned Jay Leno; he famously has one. I, I just assumed he did. Yeah, I, he does, right? Okay. 
And there's a whole subculture of them now. It's just that they, uh, the hydraulic systems and their air suspension, they have an air, air suspension that allows you to kind of raise and lower the car. But if you neglect the car at all, the air goes out of the airbags and it sinks down to the floor and it looks deader than any. It doesn't look like a low rider. <laughs> it's like a sad. It just looks like a dead thing. <laughs> and just to get all of that hydraulic stuff uh, in working order is a fifty dollars to $100,000 uh, job for, for anybody. And the most famous Mercedes 600 mechanic restorer is a guy, a, a, actually a German guy who lives in Wausau, Wisconsin. Okay. Uh, and his name is Carl Middlehau. And he, very early on, he was a Mercedes fan. He very early on took an interest in these cars uh, and became like the the world authority on them in his little town in Wisconsin. I should note that in looking at the Wausau, Wisconsin page on Google, um, or yeah, Google, you know how, or Wikipedia, no, I'm sorry, Wikipedia, you know, some of those little towns or little towns always have a, a a part of their wiki that says notable people. Yeah. Um, Wausau, Wisconsin population 35,000 has a longer list of notable people than any other wiki page I've ever seen. Are they legitimately? No. Oh. <laughs> they named every single person from I thought they were all going to be megastars. Brad no, Pitt. No, they're all uh, like uh, people that served in the, in in the Wisconsin, Wisconsin State House, State House for, yeah, yeah, for right. one term. But Liberace stood out as a former resident. He's a, Was- a Wasavian? Mm-hmm. I bet he could, could have pulled off the Mercedes 600. I bet, he, I bet at one point he'd ri- he'd ri- he wrote in one. But Carl Middlehauve, uh now it has become kind of – he's a guy that every time he repairs one, he takes everything off of it and meticulously catalogs them. Oh, and another thing I should say is Mercedes famously keeps parts for all of their cars. Mercedes – the Daimler archive, which is their, you know, their, their industrial archive of everything they ever made, is one of the largest archives in the world. Yeah. They retained everything. And so you can actually send one of these to Mercedes and they'll restore it to factory specs. Uh, Carl Middle. By the way, how did the hydraulics hold up? Not well. Yeah, I was, I was assuming. The system was brilliant if, as long as you maintained it. But if you neglected it for, and that meant bleeding it periodically. And um, as, if you neglected it at all, the car just went to hell. Liquid just seems unreliable as a medium for technological growth. Yeah. Just because it's always dripping and leaking and evaporating and whatever icky things liquids do. Dripping and leaking, right? Famous for that. And also, it's under tremendous pressure. We're not talking about your prostate. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Uh, Yeah, exactly. I mean, it has to be under intense pressure to work. Yeah. So, frequent... Maintenance required. I guess. And so Middlehalve is is famous for um, taking these cars all the way apart. And, you know, their auction prices in good condition have recently been, been really soaring. You know, a few years ago, you could get one in pretty good condition. You could get a, a beater for, for um, what seemed like an incredible value. It's just that you just bought a dead car and yeah. you don't know 
first thing about it. Famously, people say that the that the four way window switch for the driver's side um, hydraulic windows was an eleven thousand dollar part, <laughs> um, and I think you know it's arguable you know whether you could you could build one yourself for less, but but um, but now I mean most recently there was one sold for four hundred thousand bucks, and ones that have. Um, that have like some history behind them, like like Tito's. Oh sure, car sold for like almost three million dollars or more. That's because people are trying to get Tito DNA out That's of the right. seats and make a new Tito. That's what I would do. <laughs> That's right. Uh, oh Tito, we hardly knew ye. So they're they they're uh, like a restored one, one in good condition is is now you know a car that's going to be. Uh, Worth hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars, and they are—they're typically regarded as things to keep sacred and precious. And like, like I say about Middlehouse, he keeps every little grommet and has a, a greater warehouse of parts than even Mercedes does. He's got like a sliding ladder in his garage that goes past all these little tiny drawers. He does with every little screw. I can imagine it. That's my Lego room. But there's uh there is Middlehouse is um is maybe even better known for the following blasphemy. Uh-oh. Uh this is a blasphemy so egregious that even the editors of Wikipedia put a catty little remark in their web in the webpage for the for the Mercedes six hundred. A, a remark kind of to the effect that this was an abomination. What did he do? He was at a, a car event and he actually ran into Paul Brack, the original designer of the car. And they were familiar with each other and they, you know, fast friends. Paul Brack still is at the time, I think was in his seventies. And, um, and in the course of socializing around this event, uh, Paul Brack noticed that uh, that Carl Middlehouse's daily driver was a um, Chevy El Camino, and he said, "Really, you restore Mercedes six hundreds, but you <laughs> drive an El Camino?" And um, Middlehouse said, "Well, you know, there's no, there's nothing like it, right? It's got the comforts of a car, but uh, but the." the utility of a truck and they got talking and middlehouse said you know i could build a uh, a truck bed mercedes 600 but like the design would be so complicated to to do this conversion that I, it's just above my pay grade you know i'm not a car designer and brack said well i am a car designer the original designer of this car. How about if I build one for, or design one for you? Did he do it? And he sent him plans for an El Camino <laughs> version of the Mercedes 600. <laughs> and uh, Carl Middlehouse built not one, but two Mercedes 600 El Caminos. One of them he calls El Benzo and the other Benzamino. I'm trying to find, oh, there it is. Ah. <laughs> 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 uh. Wow. Yeah. So although they are um although they are 
cars of great historical significance, they aren't, uh, I mean, nothing, I guess, is above being given the El Camino treatment. It definitely keeps the beauty of both. It's the best of both worlds. I'm going to get rid of my car and buy a Benzamino. And that concludes Der Grosser, entry 551.ex1407, certificate number 49472, in the omnibus. And then all the outro stuff, John. Follow us on Twitter sure. and Facebook and whatnot at Omnibus Project. If at this point in time, you if this is your first Omnibus Project, go listen to some others. The outros are full of information. And the shows are much shorter and less about cars. Right. This is not a typical entry no. of the show in that it's long and about cars. But if you, if you got into this one because you are listening to every show, every Jay Leno podcast about the Mercedes Grossa, um, There's a few more you could find about cars. Yeah, we have a couple. Of, I, I referred to a couple other car episodes. I almost always drive a car on my way over here. We talk about cars a lot, you and I. Uh, uh, so we are at Ken Jennings and at John Roderick, respectively. Um, you can email us at theomnibusproject at gmail.com with your own car blather, which I will forward to John. You can mail us stuff. Uh, I'm just opening something from Kevin and Amy. I have no idea what they sent us. We got a very nice... Do you remember our friend who was going to all the state capitol buildings? Oh, yeah. Uh, it looks like maybe Dan and his son. They are wrapping up their tour. Does that mean they've been... To, oh, I think they were doing a subset. Um, here's a postcard from Kansas, from Carson City, Nevada. We also got a note from... This is lovely. Holly, outside Portland, who says, The Omnibus Project is my... Oh, uh, dear John Roderick and Ken Jennings, I need to tell you that you two mean a lot to me. Oh, the Honest Project is my sleeping pill. The, <laughs> the tone and timbre, the, the Tuesday episodes especially. <laughs> Listen to this. The t- hey, you just did a hour and a half on uh, German automotive engineering. The tone and timbre of your blather is soothing in this day and age of argumentative urgency and volume in media voices. Oh, blather is well, a kind of loaded word. Yeah, but I guess we're a calming Mr. Rogers-like yeah. presence. We're an yeah. ant- antidote to cable news. Uh, blah, blah, blah. I'm going to just look up blather real fast here. <laughs> Talk long, long-windedly without making very much sense. So, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Long-winded talk with no real substance. At 10 p.m., I set the iPad podcast for a half hour, and I'm asleep before the half hour is up. So she's not hearing this at all. We should have done this at the beginning of the show. Then at 2 or 3 a.m. when I wake up, CF, second sleep. It's still showing. I start. No, I started. (laughs) John is still talking about Mobutu Sese Seiko. No, I start another half hour. I can listen to them again because I slept through parts of each one. So yeah. it's, it's always a new show yeah. for uh, Holly. Thank you so much. In 2021, I had an emergency hip replacement oh dear. of a previous artificial hip. Holly's getting on. Yeah. In the process, my femur was fractured. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. So, darlings, all through the last eight months of pain, anger, and recovery, you gentle raconteurs have lulled me to sleep. Oh, that's wonderful. Thank you. What a lovely note, Holly. I, uh, I hope you feel better. I have, I have a friend that had both hips replaced. Did they do it at once? Yeah. Oh, oh, no, no, no. I guess he didn't. I guess it was one and then another. But boy, what an operation. Thank you. Uh, Amy uh, also sent us this package. Much love from Louisville, Kentucky. Thank you for Omnibus. Proud to be a futureling. And then Amy sent... uh, I was just in Louisville. A cable... I was just in Louisville, too. I didn't see you. Cable arch made from the arch tram cable. So it's... um, I don't know how many of these there are. It's a replica of the St. Louis Arch in a catenary shape, but it's made with actual cable from the tram that goes up and down the inside of the St. Louis Arch. 
Whoa. I hope they can get by without this nine inches of it because uh, who knows? Oh, and it's a Fort Knox postcard. Wow, this is all very omnibus. This is lovely. Yeah, that is nice. We'll put that up on our trophy shelf. Thank you for this one of a kind item, and I hope the I hope the is there a chance the track will bend? I hope the arch tram cable can survive uh, us getting this souvenir. I'm sure when it's replaced, they just. Do you ever do this with your guitar strings? Once they're replaced, you make them into a replica of um, of uh, a Fender or uh, no? I usually tie them in and not throw them in the garbage because they're because they're gross. I thought you were gonna say throw them at the crowd. But you do have uh, you do have a trophy shelf that has like the keys to the city of of several places in upstate New York. That that I, might look nice. I do have a shelf of odd of odd. Uh, trophies yeah and then and then the jeopardy trophy the jeopardy greatest of all time trophy which really makes those little plastic crossword ones look pretty sad yeah it's pretty nice i mean i used to have it here and i really miss it i wish it were i wish you still put it (laughs) right in front of your computer facing me while you recorded did we do the address so you can send us your uh own oddball artifacts to p.o box 55744 shoreline washington 98155 you can find like-minded listeners uh by searching for futurelings on Various fora, including Facebook and uh, probably Reddit and Discord. Um, the best way to support the show, as always, is to uh, listen to it after your hip replacement. Right? No. Play the banjo and <laughs> use use our bomo as lyrics. If you if you send us a lovely note, you're good. You're paid up. But if you have never sent us a lovely note, you need to actually donate. Mm. Post haste. Mm-hmm. Go to Patreon.com/slash/OmnibusProject to keep the show running. Futurelings, from my vantage point, I have no idea how my shows go to be an hour and a half. It didn't seem like I... I Boy, the time flew by, didn't it, with, it, all, that, with all that timbre of our blather? <laughs> like, in the last show we did with yours, we were off topic for 80% of the show, and yet somehow it's still not an hour and a half long. Here's the core of the question. Are your shows longer because you're meandering, or are your shows longer because I am uh, drawing you off the conversational path hmm. who knows who is to blame yeah who knows only the listener can decide only the shadow knows. you're the real you're the real editors of omnibus folks you let us know marvel dumb assembled there definitely have been some threads on facebook that said your shows are more full of information and my shows are more full of uh, horse full, full of it. <laughs> <laughs> but i don't know if that's true i don't believe that that's true I think you just sound more full of information. People assume that I'm going to be saying something smart, and they don't notice when I don't. You noticed the other it's day that, that I make that I make notes and then don't look at them when I'm doing the show. That's very impressive to me. Like the act of making the notes seems to cement the narrative in your head. So you'll like I'll sit here and play Minesweeper while you <laughs> prep a show, but then you won't look at your notes because you, you have you have absorbed the story and now you're going to relive it with us maybe that's the difference maybe your shows you're you're you actually have i do notes I've, I've, to refer i have a to. piece of paper taking me to the next line at every point because that's, that's the only way i can do it whereas i just am sort of like Wee! <laughs> here he comes i'm just naming every dictator i can think of <laughs> future links from our vantage point in your distant past we have no idea how long our civilization survived we hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come but if the worst comes soon this recording like all our recordings may have been our final word but if providence allows we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the office